If you would, go ahead and make your way to a table with some other people. There are a couple tables up front. Uh, just make sure you're at a table with other human beings as we get started tonight. Welcome to the gathering. If this is your first time, this is uh, another part of the church that we absolutely love here on Wednesday nights. Uh, we go verse by verse through the Bible, so it's a little bit different than what we uh, maybe do on Sundays. But wonderful meal tonight. I heard there was some uh, tasty spaghetti. How was the spaghetti and meatballs? Garlic bread, wonderful desserts. We're grateful for that. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Who's having a good day today? Awesome. You know, any day that we serve the Lord, that we are able to wake up is often a good day. All right. Well, hey, let's bring it together, guys. I've, I've done all like the small talk I can. Uh, I can start telling jokes, but you might laugh your pants off. So I do have one joke, by the way. I told this at our staff meeting, just since you're being chatty Cathy's, I think I'll be one. All right. You ready for it? What do you call it when Batman leaves church early? Christian Bale. Yeah, Christian Bale was like the actor who played... All right, I could get a standing ovation for that if you want. Maybe next time. Anyways, that's it. Let's get back to the gathering. Grateful that you're here tonight. Uh, Excited that you are here. You know, I, I remember walking... This is a good problem to have, I guess, so... I keep telling myself that. You know, I remember walking through a a smoke-filled room, flashing lights, electronic machine sounds, coins crashing on metal, eyes glued to spinning numbers and shapes. An old lady raises her three-quarter smoked cigarette to her wrinkly lips with one hand, and with the other hand, she reaches for a coin in the plastic cup between her legs. She drops a quarter into the insert coins here slip and taps the glowing square. In her yellow-tinted glasses, I can see the reflection of the speeding slots. The far left stops seven, cherry, and then bar, bar, bar. A woman passes by, scantily clad in what looks like a fishnet tutu and bikini combination. She smiles, but she looks tired, worn out, as if the circular tray balancing in her hand had four times as many cocktails. I remember we finally emerged from the smoky noise and flashing lights into the piercing light of day. In the scorching heat, I feel like stripping off my smoke-stained clothes as we trudge down the strip. I follow my dad past pyramids, medieval castles, the New York City skyline, the Eiffel Tower. Quite a global trip. 
Trash is blowing across the concrete before my feet. Newspapers and candy wrappers. But the playing cards of naked ladies stay stuck in the ground, cemented in. I feel awkward, embarrassed. I don't want my dad to catch me looking down. I remember as I thought, I hate this place. A tourist passes by wearing a white t-shirt. I heart Las Vegas. The ancient city of Corinth was the sin city of its day, located on the Greek peninsula, as you can see on the map. This ancient city was known as sin city of its day, but what happens in Corinth does not stay in Corinth. The church was struggling, and word of the struggling church got out to Paul. And so he wrote a letter to them about what it means to truly live for God. Our text tonight, as we continue with the book of 1 Corinthians, is about the division that was happening in Corinth over their leaders. So if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Reads, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as as I would to spiritual people. I had to talk as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in the Christian life. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? When one of you says, I am a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting just like people of the world? Father, tonight we come before you, and we don't want to be divided. We don't want to be divided among our leaders as our teachers. We don't want to be divided among our our own selves. But we want to build a firm foundation of our lives and our relationships upon you, Jesus. That's our hope and that's our prayer. So teach us tonight. Speak to our hearts in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead. You may be seated. Here in the first four verses, Paul lands a double jab or a double roundhouse kick for you karate kids. First, he informs the Corinthians that despite their own popular opinion of themselves as being very spiritual, they aren't spiritual at all. They're actually quite the opposite. They're fleshly, like mere human beings without the spirit of God. Second, he wants them to stop behaving like people of the present age. Paul doesn't mean that these people don't have the Spirit. They are believers in Jesus. They believe in his death and in his resurrection. They've asked Jesus to come into their hearts, and then they received the Holy Spirit. It's not that they don't have the Spirit. They do, but that's precisely the problem. They're thinking and behaving otherwise, like those who don't have the Spirit. His ultimate point is, stop it. 
Quit it. People of the Spirit must stop behaving the way you are. Well, let's take a closer look. Verse 1 says, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as though I would to spiritual people. I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world or as if you were fleshly. Sarkinos is is the Greek. We're going to talk about that in just a second. Or as though you were infants in Christ. I want you to take a magnifying glass to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. And what particular person or group or faction or gender is Paul trying to single out here? Take a look. What particular person or group, faction, gender is Paul singling out here? Yeah, it's a trick question. He's not singling out anybody. He's addressing the whole entire church. Not all may be guilty, but all are defiled by the sin of the many. The Corinthian Christians are involved in a lot of unchristian behavior. They're unspiritual, not because they don't have the spirit, but because they are living and acting like those who do lack the spirit. They're supposed to be spiritual, but they are living a different life. Quite the opposite, fleshly. Sarkinos comes from the Greek word sarks. Everybody say sarks. Sarks. Sarks is a booger of a word, especially for first-year Greek students. Because its form changes in various declensions. But what's interesting about that is that's what happens when you live in the flesh. You're constantly changing who you are and you're trying to trying to appease yourself and you're taking what you think is most important and chasing after it in the rat race of life never finding contentment never finding fulfillment that's only found in God our text continues in verse 2a with Paul talking about how when he was with them They were like infants in Christ or babies in the faith. Verse 2a says, I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food, because you weren't ready for anything stronger. Paul is saying, well, back then you weren't mature in the faith. You had to sit at the kids' table. And there, surrounded by scattered crayons and splintered graham crackers and sippy cups of apple juice... I had to spell things out for you. I had to essentially bottle feed you with milk. Here milk refers figuratively to the basic or elementary Christian teaching. Paul's point was that the Corinthian believers, they weren't mature enough to receive more advanced teaching like meat. Like tri-tip or filet mignon or, or top sirloin. They would choke. This was not a problem at the first time when Paul was with them as they took their first steps as baby Christians. The basics are important, but the problem arises as Paul continues in verse 2b. And you still aren't ready. In other words, you should be progressing in your faith, but you aren't maturing. Why not? Verse 3 says, for you are still controlled by your sinful nature. You are jealous of one another and quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? 
Aren't you living like people of the world? Aren't you living like people of the flesh? I want you to talk to the people around you at your table and answer the following question. What is the difference between the life and values of non-Christians and Christians? Ready, go. Okay, one more minute. Make sure everyone gets a chance to share.
All right, let's wrap it up. I want to hear what you have to say. Sounds like we had some good conversation. So, what is the difference between the life and values of non-Christians and Christians? We'll ask a couple of the groups, just uh, on the spot. Bart, your group. You don't have to be the speaker, but uh, unless you don't want to. So who is Lord of your life is great. Awesome. Awesome. All right, let's hear from another group. Uh, who wants to go? Anybody? Oh, all right. Uh, let's have, all right. I know it here. I was decided Ed has a hand raised back there. I mean, whatever. Oh, you wrote it down. All right. Cool. Okay, so temporal versus everlasting. Great, great, great. Ed, we're not going to skip you, man. Holiness. Okay, being set apart, transcendent, pure. Anyone else like dying to share their group? Okay, all right. Micah, your group, you get to share. That's right. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I think it uh, boils down to the, re- the reality that the main difference, I-, I think all of you guys, there should be a difference, right? Between people who follow Jesus and people who don't, right? If you can't see a difference between people... Yeah, all right, we got her hand. She's 92. We got to let her share right here. She's going to stand up too. That's right.
Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. Oh. Right. Amen. Thank you. I think what it boils down to, the main difference, is your life. Are you self-centered or are you Jesus-centered? Now, a lot of times the problem is Christians are very self-centered. And so we appear like everybody else in the world, right? People who are supposedly worldly. Are you living a Jesus-centered life or are you living a self-centered life? If we're living a self-centered life, then we better listen up because Paul's message for the Corinthians is for us here today. You know, it's impossible Absolutely impossible to grow in spiritual maturity if you are controlled by the sinful nature. Impossible to grow spiritually. Bonhoeffer, I think, said it best. He said, the disobedient cannot believe. Only the obedient believe because only the one who believes is obedient and only the one who is obedient believes. German theologian and pastor who died for his faith at the hands of the Nazis in World War II. I mean, I can't say it better than that. I think that takes a second glance. The disobedient cannot believe. Only the obedient believe. Because only the one who believes is obedient and only the one who is obedient believes. You know, immaturity, it leads to silly, immature conversations and arguments like, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos. Verse 4 says, when one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, aren't you acting just like people of the world? Uh, yeah. The jealously quarreling Corinthians have a radically misguided perception of the church. And it's leadership, especially when it comes to the role of teachers. They're saying, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. Well, hopefully you follow Jesus. No matter what we may tell you, we teachers are not superstars. And we are not your saviors. I didn't die on the cross for your sins. That was Jesus. Verse 5 says, after all, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We were only God's servants through whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work the Lord gave us. Here, Paul uses images from agriculture as he takes up the question of how to regard teachers. Verses 6 through 9a says, I planted the seed in your hearts and Apollos watered it. 
this expression is here generally taken to express how Paul planted the church. And after Paul came Apollos, who watered it. That is, he had a significant ministry there. But it was God who made it grow. Isn't that the most important part? It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together with the same purpose. And both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we are both God's workers and you are God's field. Those who plant and teach and lead are are simply workers, co-workers, planting and irrigating a field. Planting and irrigating are great, but if there's no growth at all, it's kind of meaningless. I mean, we're in a drought in California. So if we take it in terms of that, irrigating without growth is simply a waste of water, and planting without growth is simply burying things underground. Growth and the ability to produce growth, that's what counts. And that's God's work. So stop quarreling over whose tasks are nothing in comparison to the activity of God. For God alone saves and God alone sanctifies. You know, we teachers, Paul, Apollos, Jeremy, Jeff, Britt, and Francis, Ed, Bruce, we are nothing in comparison, in comparison to the significance and importance of God, the God who we serve. You know, uh, when I... When I first started going to grad school at Fuller Theological Seminary, I remember my first day, and I was in a Greek class, and we all were introducing ourselves, and luckily I wasn't the first person to go, because I heard each person going, and I was about to say, uh, I'm Jeremy, uh, I'm from Camarillo, the outlets, I would always mention the outlets because no one knew where Camarillo was. And then I, I would say like something like, well, uh, I'm a pastor. I work at, at Journey the Church. Well, good thing I didn't go first because everyone else set it up right. And in the process of just listening to everyone else, it kind of changed some things in how I was going to share. They were saying, my name is so-and-so. I'm from this place. And I serve at this church. Even if they said, I'm a pastor, I serve at this church. So when it came to me, I said, Jeremy, and I I made sure that I said, I serve at Journey the Church. There's a big difference. We are co-workers who have the honor of serving God. Now, we in charge all too often fall into the trap of thinking that the church is ours. The church isn't ours. It belongs to Jesus. The church is Jesus Christ's blood-bought bride. And it's not my ministry. You know, the ministry you might be involved in, women's ministry, children's ministry. Maybe you're involved in women's ministry. It's not your ministry. It's not my ministry. All ministry is God's ministry. It's Jesus Christ's blood-bought bride. You know, I, I don't really care if you've attended since day one. Or if you've blessed the church with great sums of money. Or if you're a really important, funny, cute, charming pastor. The church 
the church belongs to Jesus. And all other things, structures, attitudes, decisions, nature of ministry, everything should flow out of that singular realization that the church is Jesus Christ's blood-bought bride. So if Paul is called to plant, and if Apollos is called to water, and if the church is the field, and if God makes it grow, then does that make God like the sun that provides a source for photosynthesis to occur? Or is God the carbon dioxide that the plants consume and turn into oxygen? Every analogy, every metaphor has its limits. If we were to say God is a rock, that's great, and that's biblical, that's in Scripture. But that's not all that God is. Sure, maybe God as a rock means that God is strong, immovable, firm, you can count on Him. But God as a rock can only do so much. And so we use different analogies, different metaphors to describe it. Well, every analogy, every metaphor has its limits. So here, Paul provides another. Verse 9b says, You are God's building. So the imagery shifts from botany to building, from agriculture to architecture. Because of God's grace to me, I have laid the foundation like an expert builder. Now, others are building on it, but whoever is building on this foundation must be very careful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. So be careful in how you preach and how you teach and how you lead and live and build a foundation for faith. Verse 12 says, Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials. Gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. I want you to talk to the people at your table. And I want you to address this question. How would you describe these materials and their foundation building ability. Okay? Go.
Alright, let's bring it back together here. Paul here uses the gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw example to refer to the quality of work that is built upon the foundation. Now, the foundation is Jesus Christ. These materials have been understood as both valuable and worthless. Valuable, you've got gold, silver, precious stones, and worthless, wood, hay, or straw. But value and worthlessness isn't really the point. As Paul continues, all that matters to him is the imperishable imperishable quality of some over and against the others. Some endure fire while others get burned up. Verses 13 through 15 says, But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. So it doesn't really matter if something is worthless or is valuable, just what can stand the test of fire. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. In other words, what I feel Paul is saying is don't jerry-rig the gospel. Don't MacGyver the message of God's saving activity. You know, duct tape salvation or duct tape foundations may, may last for a little bit, but they won't stand the test of time. Not under fire, especially. We have a foundation, Jesus Christ. But what happens is we often try to build the church out of every imaginable human system. Worldly wisdom, pop psychology, managerial techniques, relational good feelings, or what have you. But in the end, all such building where human systems become more important than the gospel itself, these human systems will be shown for what they truly are. Something merely human with no character of Jesus or his gospel. Christianity without Christ as the foundation is a Christianity without Christ. But the good news is we don't have to build badly. The foundation of Jesus Christ, crucified for the sins of the world, then raised back to life, is our message. It is our hope, our security, our purpose. It's our everything. And it will survive the test of time. It will survive the fiery flames and what struggles may come. Jesus Christ is the sure foundation for everything. So what we build upon that foundation must be something of of great value and of great worth and care and consideration. But Jesus has to be the foundation for everything. Jesus is the proper foundation for a marriage, for a friendship, a relationship, a business. Without Jesus, we are lost, absolutely lost. You know, I'm learning what it means to have Jesus as the foundation of my marriage, of our marriage. Today, we celebrate three years uh, of marriage. And 
I had to get her flowers because if I didn't, I'd get in trouble. Nah. Uh, three years, 1,095 days. If... Now, I know that many of you guys have outnumbered us significantly, but three years is really fun, especially when your foundation is Jesus. And now, how do you have Jesus as the foundation of your marriage or your life or your relationship? Well, I'll just tell you what we do. We, we pray together. I mean, like every night before we go to bed, we're not like over the top. We have to pray at every single moment, every five minutes. We don't, we don't just gather together and pray. I mean, I, I pretty much do because Paul says like, you know, pray constantly, never cease to pray. Just, that's a lie. That's a lie. But we pray. We listen. Listen, we, we talk things out. We work through things. Uh, we serve, we love, we worship, and we, we give. I think that's a way of, of having a foundation that is, that is solid, that's on Jesus. And what's strange is that I'm learning how to say and mean things that sound very, very strange. I'm learning how to say to my wife, I don't need you. Now, that sounds really unromantic. Let me finish. I've also learned how to say, I don't love you with all my heart. Wow, you'll never read that on a Hallmark card. You'll never see that on Lifetime or, or The Bachelor or whatever. But the truth is, I love her. I love her. I love her. But I'm learning that God is all that I need. And the truth is... I can't love her with all my heart because I have to love God with all my heart. And I'm learning that when I'm able to first love God with all my heart, with all my mind and all my soul, I'm able to love her deeper in a way that I've never understood, in a way that's it's better. So it sounds strange to say, I don't need you. Or... I can get along without you because the truth is I, I wouldn't want to. And I don't love you with all my heart. That doesn't sound like a nice thing to say. But in first laying my life down and picking up the cross and the life that Jesus has, setting him as the foundation, that's what it takes. Offering everything to God. Because what can you possibly offer to someone if you haven't offered it first to God? I don't know. All I'm saying is build a proper foundation, a proper foundation on Jesus. Love him wholeheartedly, completely, and then everything else will fall into place. You'll be able to love people better. Your life may not be like so much better, but it will be so much more purposeful and so much more godly. And you will be connected with God in a way that actually matters. In a way that is more than a Sunday and Wednesday sort of idea. So I want you just to think about maybe, maybe some areas in your life where, man, I, I am living apart from God. Like this area of my life, God has no part in it. Maybe that's your marriage. Maybe that's your work life. Maybe that's your business. Well, how do you have Jesus as the foundation? You might need to reorder some things. 
And so I want to close in prayer tonight. Our passage ends on a strange note with Paul still kind of ripping into the Corinthians for their hard-heartedness, for their fleshly life. But I know that we as a church have decided to build upon the foundation of Jesus. And that's our hope. That's what we do here. And it's all because of Jesus that things happen and things grow, that things change. It's for him and for his glory. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. And we know that when we first love you, everything else falls into place. When we offer ourselves wholeheartedly to you, we know that we can then love people better. But Lord, we can't adequately or authentically or passionately love people if we don't adequately or passionately or authentically love you first. God, we need you in our lives. We need you in our world, as Alicia was saying during worship. We ask for your spirit to break out. We don't want to be fleshly people who live double lives, but God, we want to be people who are real and authentic, people who are spirit-led. And we know that takes every ounce of our energy and strength. We know that takes every moment of every day living for you. But guide our steps, we pray. For the journey ahead is worth it. Because you are with us and we love you. I thank you for this church and I thank you for the amazing things that are happening here. I thank you for the people here who who serve you tirelessly. But Lord, help us to serve you more. To love you better than maybe we ever have before. Help us to love those around us in our world that is hurting right now. For we are your hands and feet. We are your people, God. So send us out, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.